Hello and welcome to episode 78 of Herpetological Highlights with your hosts, myself, Tom Major, and of course, Ben Marshall. And in this episode, we've actually got a Patreon special episode, so first things first, big shout to Hudson Schwaz, thanks for being our patron. And uh, yeah, great choice for an episode. Originally, Hudson was keen on us doing an episode on Euromastics, which are just some bad boy little lizards that are desert dwelling, um, vegetable eating chunky little customers but unfortunately science hasn't really got with the picture and done any well i mean let's face it it's let us down it's let us down again yeah really it has i mean there's not a lot in the way of euromastics research i actually know of a phd student who's studying euromastics but um i don't think that she's actually published anything yet so maybe in a couple more years there'll be an opportunity for a euromastics special but at the minute it's just it's another species another sort of um genus which is just like really underrepresented in scientific literature and certainly nothing much on their ecology so in lieu of being able to do euromastics specifically we've kind of broadened the scope to a desert species and desert species of lizard and uh, in this episode we're going to be talking about first of all some um cool color of a lizard tail and then moving mm-hmm. on to um just a really interesting paper about a widely ranging species and how their behavior might differ depending on the climate they're finding themselves in. Yeah, that's what we're sort of, I suppose that's the, uh, other than desert, that's the combining or linking theme here, isn't it? Is is sort of behavioral adaptations, right? Because we're, yeah. we're, talk- we're going to be talking about sort of more fun, showy off behavior stuff. And then we've got some sort of survivor behavioral stuff later on. Yeah. That's, that's the way I'm connecting them in my mind. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And uh, yeah, certainly the second paper, the survival stuff, is a good way to look at it. Very mixed fates, depending on uh, where you are. A We're going to be talking about horny toads, those bizarre little lizards. Very mixed fate, depending on where you're born as a horny toad. You might be living a nice, cushy life where it's roasty toasty, or you might get it way chillier. But we will get into all that later yep. on. But in the meantime, should we get into paper one? Yes, so this is a paper published in Ethology. Uh, we had Ethology like... last week, or last episode, didn't we? Did we? See, yeah, I cause... thought I was just having some weird deja vu. No, yeah, because you called it something else. You called it like Ethography in the episode, and I was like, "Yeah, no, no, Ethology. That's probably the only reason That's... I remembered. Yeah, to be fair, I don't read much from Ethology. No, it sort of reason. flies under the radar. Yeah. Uh, so, paper by Gilbert Brooks and Latanzio. Latanzio? Latanzio. Yeah? Yeah. Hey! <laughs> uh, published in 2019. Multiple behavioral contexts of a melanized tail display in a desert lizard. Mm, yes. Delicious. Desert, desert lizard. Desert lizard. Ah, yes. Desert and dessert. So, yeah, we're talking about coloration in this one. And the kind of overarching theme of this paper, and it's something that we've talked about in the podcast as well, and it's actually something we talked about when we were talking about those strawberry dart frogs uh, just recently, and that is that color isn't as simple as we think it is. In the example of those dart frogs, we were like, oh, yeah, aposomatic coloration, right? They're bright red. The predators think that's red. Bad, bad, bad. Conversely, humans think bright red, good, good, good. And so do tortoises, which is kind of weird. But certainly if you see yes, a bright red... Yes, but a lot red, of it, some things can't even see red. That's true. Yeah. 
Isn't there a theory that our red color vision evolved so we could pick apples? Well, that's what I that's that I that's the one I've heard. Yeah, I like and it. And considering that actually red as an aposomatic signal is relatively rare compared to things like yellows, it seems pretty sensible, right? Yeah. And the fact that the red sync yeah, but anyway, <laughs> apple Apples and monkeys, nobody cares about that. <laughs> exactly. We're talking about lizards. And uh, yeah, basically, colour, it's not just going to have one evolutionary pressure acting upon it, right? So you've got, they're, they're trying to be red to be a warning for predators. But also at the same time, maybe they're also trying at some level to blend in. Uh, you know, coloration has functions in communication, it has functions in predatory warning, it has functions in um, camouflage. And so there's all of these selective pressures acting on color all at once um, synergistically exactly yeah so yeah. yeah basically color is being well sometimes synergistically and sometimes antagonistically right so if you've got color being selected for is, antagonist- for, is that the right word they used it in the paper that's where i learned it oh it just makes it sound like the the forces acting on color are grumpy with each other as well <laughs> i like to think that well, they are antagonist- i like to think yeah, that, yeah. If you imagine Crypsis or camouflage, right, as this like sort of eternal, omnipresent being, right? And when it sees Mm -hmm. animals getting more brightly coloured, it just gets livid. That's not what Crypsis wants. Crypsis wants dull. Enraged. Yeah. But but yeah, so you've got all of these things acting on colour at the same time. And in this paper, they wanted to try and set out to unpick some of these for a lizard, which is called Cophosaurus texanus, the greater earless lizard. It's pretty great. It's pretty great, and there is actually there is actually a lesser earless lizard, but uh, no one cares. Nobody, it's inferior. nobody really talks about that one. Yeah, lesser. So yeah, the lesser earless lizards, Holbrookia maculata, which is like closely related, different genus, but um, similar lizard. But yeah, we're talking about Cophosaurus texanus, the greater earless lizard. They are from Texas, Oklahoma, Texas and Oklahoma. <laughs> Texas, Oklahoma. <laughs> You know, Texas in Oklahoma. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's a, their etymology is quite cool, actually. Kophosaurus actually is derived from the Greek words kopho, meaning death, and soros, meaning lizard. So yeah, lizard death, lizard. Death? Death, li- the death, no death as in it can't hear. Oh. Death. Oh, that, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> yeah, because they have no external ear openings. But despite that, they aren't actually deaf. It's not. It's uh, kind of a misnomer. They uh, they can hear. They just don't have external ear openings. Um, they just choose not to show it. Yeah, and uh, they eat bugs, which they catch via ambush. And they're actually from the family Phrynosomatidae, which is obviously the same genus as the the same family as Phrynosoma, the genus, which is um, those hilarious little horny toads. And that's what we're going to be talking about in our second paper. So they're actually distant relatives. Well, not even that distant, the same family of uh, the other species we're going to be talking about today. But they're these um, medium-sized lizards, about nine centimetres long, snout to vent. Uh, they're grey or tan. They've got like... Well, grey or tan. Yeah. Grey or tan, he says. That is underplaying the beauty of these guys. Yeah, it is. I'm getting to the jazzy colours. They do have All some right. jazzy colours. Why don't you tell us about the jazzy colours? Uh well is it is it both males and females with the with the ventral jazzy colours or is it is that a is that a male trait? They've certainly my seen... impression is that the females have it but it's less pronounced. Hmm. Okay, so we've got this nice grey and white head, 
sort of speckly. It moves down where some of the white gets replaced with orange spots. You've still got sort of darker grain amongst the orange. Then it turns into this very intense uh, yellow and the spots are turning into stripes all of a sudden. Then it fades back out to sort of grey and yellowy stripes onto the tail. But what's quite stunning about these guys, you flip them over and you've got this sort of lower lower body area which is bright blue with a couple of very dark black stripes in it for the males and the blue contrasts beautifully with the orange and they are little little fiery looking fellas they're gorgeous oh and a, what's very important to this paper a stripy black and white Don't underside the to the tail yeah 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 absolutely yeah that's the um... that will be that will be coming back there's no <laughs> way we can we can forget about that but yeah you don't often see that kind of blue color it's like a sort of i don't know i'm not very good with my blues i just bandy around words like it's aquamarine, a... ultra blue yeah it's got a bit of sort of turquoiseiness to it i'd say yeah but somehow richer like a turquoisey teal perhaps mm. Yeah. And the reason that Ben mentions the fact that the tail will be relevant is because they wave their tail pretty much all the time. They're waving it for various different reasons. They're waving it at predators. They're waving it at each other. And uh, yeah, the black bands underneath the tail, which contrast with the white, are very noticeable. And that's the reason we're discussing this species. Potentially, third reason being thermoregulation. Thermoregulation, yeah, potentially. Um, So yeah, that's the reason why we're discussing them, because... The authors of this paper set out to find out, right, there are these black bars underneath of these tails. We know that they're using them as a sort of anti-predator defense. And what they do is they turn sideways onto the predator and then they raise the tail. And they'll raise it up and down, up and down. And that flashes these black and white bands to the predator. And it's thought that might be some kind of signal of like, yo, hey, I can see you, predator. And I'm fast. So don't waste your time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You've already lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's literally like the ultimate psych out. <laughs> and so what they wanted to do is they wanted to see if these tails, not only did they want to see if um, the flash of black and white, if there was like more or bolder black, if that meant they were faster. They also wanted to see if there was a preference by the females to see if females preferred males with uh, the more more bands or bigger bands to see if it was under sexual selection. So, okay, they're flashing them at predators and they're flashing them at females. Are they, are there, are these evolutionary pressures pushing the tail in different directions or the same direction? And the idea is there's there's a term for if they were pushing the same, this idea of this honest signal, I think they call it, where the thing which appears to be sort of sexually selected for is actually directly connected to some sort of uh, survival uh, or, or some sort of performative trait or, or aspect. In this case, it would be something out of anti-predator, like you say. Exactly. Because yeah, then exactly. there's the, the, alter- the alternative is a dishonest signal where you'd have a really fancy individual, but actually the fanciness is completely detached from the fitness of the animal. Hmm. Yeah, you'd that, think that... Uh, you think they'd always sort of head towards syncing up, but like you're saying, there are there is this idea of antagonistic drivers on the same trait, in this case, colour. Absolutely. And the third thing they wanted to check was to see if individuals with more melanin, so more black in the tails, warmed up more quickly. 
And so therefore the tail bands would be playing a role in thermoregulation. So there'd be a potential third selection pressure selecting for the nice black bars to allow the lizards to heat up faster in the sun and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, get on with their business. So we have predator avoidance, uh, female preference and thermoregulation. That's our trio of driving factors on or potential driving factors on this uh, ventral tail area dark band stripiness exactly so what did they find lizards yeah they had a bunch of lizards they did a bunch of trials with them some different things which will kind of become clear as we talk about them um so yeah i mean should we talk about the sprint speed i think sprint speed is a is a good way to start i mean sort of little bit of background they're grabbing these lizards they're bringing them into a controlled environment they are taking careful measurements of how much dark area there is on the tail, number of bands, area, that sort of stuff. So we have this metric for uh, the amount of, of sort of melanin dark area on the tail before they do anything. Yep, and they also counted the bars underneath the tails. Right. Um, and they actually found that males have a higher number between five and nine and females have five and seven so the animals with the most bars were males on the underneath of that tail yeah i mean they had either six seven or eight bars and only males had eight bars oh were there no nine bars no oh okay maybe that. Well, not, may- as long as they're as long as they're uh, for, for experiment one yeah i mean oh, that's okay. what figure two's showing there aren't any individuals with nine bars Oh, okay. I'm, I read that. Maybe they're maybe that's like in the population at large or in a different thing. But yes, in their in their sample for experiment one, no nine bars. Okay, cool. So, um, yeah, I mean, sprint speed. They basically just put them on a track and uh, got them to run the old poke and run method. And they wanted to see whether or not males who had more area covered by black on their tails had the ability to run faster, therefore making it an honest signal to predators when they flashed on the tail. And guess what? It is. If you've got more black on your tail, you're going to be faster at sprinting. So, yeah, that flash to the predator is actually an honest signal of, yo, I'm quick and uh, I'm out of here. Yeah. And they tried, you know, they, they, they did this pretty thoroughly, too. They tested um, they tested another important aspect. So you, you're working with lizards, you're working with a cold-blooded animal, uh, something that we know to directly impact the performance of cold-blooded animals is the temperature they're operating at right a very cold lizard is going to be you know that's going to be a sad little slow lizard so to account for that they did these trials at different temperatures but it's also important to account for individual variation right just because one lizard's really good at 38 degrees doesn't mean that another lizard would be good at 38 degrees so they had a variety what were their temperatures between uh 33 and 42 no 30 and 42 so a whole number of trials to make sure that they're capturing the full or at least a good breadth of the the temperatures these lizards would be experiencing so you're going to be capturing that number one individual uh variety variation and so you're giving them a fair a fair chance in all temperatures because if they were just very good at one temperature well it would just it would just be weird. It wouldn't be as there's no real selective pressure to be very good at running at 42. You'd that's be a bit of a bit of an outlier or something. Too niche. Trying to capture yeah, too that. Niche. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, oh, oh, there's a predator, but I'm not feeling it because it's a bit too cold. Uh, it's not, yeah. That's not It'd how it works. Useless. Yeah. Yeah. 
But that was a nice thing to cover to really capture a lot of that that variability both population wise and in the context of what they're experiencing in the wild. Yeah, totally. And uh, it's quite cool that they've discovered this signal being honest because uh, way back in 1989, Hassan et al. actually, um, well, they predicted that it was going to be a signal of an ability of the lizard to outrun the predator. And uh, yeah, you know, how many years ago is that? 30 years on, now we have some solid evidence in support of this prediction because the more melanistic individuals, and they're also more conspicuous as a result, actually exhibited the greater so, spin speeds. tick one for question one. Bigger area of darkness, yeah? Yep. Increased uh, locomotive performance, as they termed it. Ability to run away. That's it. That's it. Yes, and that was, that was like, uh, band colour corrected for uh, by SVL, so it wasn't just bigger lizards were faster. They did. Yeah. You know, they they took into account bigger lizards tended to have larger areas of dark because they had bigger tails to cover in terms yeah. of band width. Yeah, it was a relative measure, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so the second experiment they did was the female preference experiment. Now this is kind of like a Thunderdome of love, <laughs> or or blind date, or blind date. Yeah, blind date. What a show! Wow, that takes me back. Scylla Black, what a woman. Rest in peace. <laughs> Um, yeah, so is she even dead? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. I seem to recall that she was in the news for some reason about a house in Spain. I can't remember what had happened there. Anyway, really. Is Scylla Black dead? Black died at age 72. Scylla Black died on the 1st of August 2015. The place of death of Scylla Black is Estepona, Spain. There you go. I I read her... Death report, I guess. <laughs> Newspaper. God, morbid. Sorry, fans of Scylla Black. I actually do rate her. Um, so, yeah, that was a, a, a morbid little aside. <laughs> but anyway, back to the uh, Cophosaurus blind date. What they did, they had an aquarium, and the aquarium was glass. But one side where the observers were, it was like, you couldn't see through it. Is opaque. So there was just these little slits. So the observers could put their beady little eyes up to the glass and see through. And in the aquarium was a female lizard, greater earless lizard. And attached either side of that aquarium were two adjoining aquariums. And those each housed a male. Well, the female went in first. And then the males were dropped in either aquarium next door. And based on where the female went in the aquariums, was deemed to be the mate she was selecting. Now, in lots of species, this would be quite tenuous, but it sounds as though these lizards are quite promiscuous and uh, quite keen to engage in some social behaviour. Well, and they've got this this critical uh, behaviour that's been observed in the wild where it isn't... where you have have females going to males' territories. Like, that's that's the way they, they find mates, is it's an active search and going to territories. So there is this idea of the female sort of displacing herself and moving indicating preference right that's been established in the wild that's that's what's key as opposed to her just sort of chilling out and just knowing you know making the choice in her mind the assumption is she will move to 
you know that that choice is in the movement if you see yeah. what i mean yeah it is and luckily the males are like unbelievably willing to start displaying immediately upon seeing a female which also makes this very very yeah. easy yeah so yeah what was interesting was that sure enough lots of females were given lots of choices and the male greater realists with more tail bars actually had a higher rate of female association so the color actually does represent a cue for females to select a potential mate they do find something to be attractive about the number of tail bars more tail bars equals more attention from the opposite sex and i know what you're thinking what if the black bars on the tails of the males aren't the reasons why the females like them it's just a coincidence that the bars are favored more bars are favored Perhaps it could be something else which is correlated with the back bars. Well, they also checked the ventral patch area. So that was the blue that you were um, mm, on yeah, earlier on. Yeah, blue and ben. dark stripes. Yeah. Yeah. To see if that influenced their choice. Uh, and they also checked the body size to see whether or not it was just females selecting for the largest males. And neither of those traits was a significant predictor of female association with a given male. And, and critically, the area the area of, of dark for the bands the, the basically the metric that indicated or help that could be used to predict locomotive performance so it wasn't that either it was the number of bars so you've got this situation where you've got performance predicted by area but this female association predicted by number of bands so quite closely tied together but a little bit different yeah but different different selective pressures really i mean sure you can have maybe the yeah bigger bands and more bands you'd almost think that if you were going to have fewer bands they might end up being wider bands so it could be that they're i don't know that's really confusing isn't it that's like a yeah unpicking whether or not those two things are synergistic or not is kind of hard right i mean from this analysis it would suggest that they're not mm. right but at the same time, I'm not. Did they did they put number of bars in their initial performance model? And if so, how? No. Oh no! Wait. If there was a sexual dimorphism, but no a sexual dimorphism in number of bars. No, I think they only used melanin cover. Hmm. Okay. So basically, that's not something that they looked at specifically then. That's a shame. So actually, they could be super connected because you would expect more bars to have greater area anyway. Perhaps. Yeah, you'd you'd think so, wouldn't you? You'd think so, because the bars... Hmm. I don't know. I guess it just depends whether or not more bars cover up white or whether yeah. fewer bars expand to fill the area. Yes. It's kind of a... Yeah. We I guess we've got no way of knowing, have we? But We don't, and it's... It, well, I mean, we would have had a way of knowing because could have just quickly ran a very rough and ready model because I've described their model formulas fine, but the data's not available, so I couldn't do it. Uh. I did look. I did look. Because I was like, hmm, you know what would help me understand exactly what they collected if I just saw the data sheet? Because mm. um, I guess I'm weird like that and seeing the Seeing the data helps me <laughs> understand things better than some words. But uh, nope, afraid not. All right, well, another uh, another nod towards freely available data for everyone. Okay, uh, so we've got this situation so far. 
where we know that more black bars equals sexier males, and we know that more black area equals faster males. The final yes. thing they wanted to find out was, does it help in thermoregulation? Are the individuals with more melanin, as in larger black bar area, going to be warming up faster? And they actually found no evidence for that, didn't they? Right. They didn't warm up any faster with more melanin. They did some experiments, um, some temperature experiments where they were looking at the lizards gaining heat. And uh, yeah, the black bars weren't having any effect on their rate of heat absorption. So yeah, it's not that surprising because the black bars are underneath. If they're going to have a role, then you'd think... I mean, there was some suggestion in the paper that they do sometimes turn their bars towards the sun when they're just like chilling out by themselves. But nevertheless, the fact that they're underneath the body and you they kind of have to make an effort. Yeah, they didn't find evidence to suggest it helps them warm up. Yeah, yeah, I think it was a it was a pretty convincing setup for the uh, performance and female association. But the uh, temperature one, not so much, which sort of makes sense, doesn't it? Because you think you've already got two pretty strong selective pressures. You know, one is, are you going to get eaten? The other one is, are you going to reproduce? Those yeah. two are, you know, what more fundamental <laughs> aspects are there for for natural selection? Yeah, how warm you're going to? Okay, yeah, if you heat up a bit faster or a bit slower, yeah, that's going to have some bearing on it. But it's a little bit more detached than those other two aspects. Yeah, I reckon thermo. I'm sure they are being selected. For, I'm sure there are elements of their coloration being selected mm-hmm. for thermoregulation, but um, it's not these Absolutely. black bars. And yeah, I think the, perhaps in species which are living in a more difficult environment, that thermoregulatory thing might be a little bit more pronounced. Yeah, exactly. I, that's what I was going to bring up is in these temperatures, how much, how much sort of basking thermoregulation is required because, I mean, this this leads nicely into the next paper that we'll discuss in a little bit more detail, but different times require different amounts. So if you are in an environment that you can sort of skip the basking stage, then maybe it's it's not a big deal at all. But... Thermoconform. Right, right. Thermoconform where possible. And really, you can abbreviate that's just conform where possible. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, multiple pressures on colour evolution in Cophosaurus texanus no single evolutionary or ecological context behind the evolution of color color is complex and it continues to get more complex yeah i think there were some neat points they bring up in the discussion where in other um studies they were bringing up a different um i didn't read the paper but basically in common lizards a little what is it zoo Zootoka Zootoka, yeah, those guys. They, uh, a different paper, this this San Jose et al. 2017 paper, showed that the high melanin individuals actually had slower sprint speeds. But weren't they like more violent or something as well? They had some... Higher higher bite forces. Higher bite force, yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure if that's more violent. (laughs) But what I was going to bring up is Okay, so you've ID'd this cool connection between this this pattern and this higher melanin content, these larger darker bars in this uh, lizard in North America. You go to a completely different species and you see a completely opposite effect in, you know, a lizard that 
I don't know. You, you've got say to the assume same. is Say they're the same. Away. <laughs> they're the same lizard. <laughs> Completely different lizard. Yeah. But probably have quite similar predatory pressures, right? Yeah, you'd expect so, and right? And increased thermoregulatory pressures with, with, you know, I would presume that common lizards might actually need to bask and thermoregulate more actively, and melanin in that context might help more. But basically the point is, one pattern in one lizard in, in one species doesn't hold over to even another lizard species. Like, these are very specific, species-specific uh, pressures and solutions to what could be actually very similar uh, problems and selective pressures. I think that's... Yeah. Or, I mean, there might even be variation within the species for this sort of stuff, because, you know, you swap out predators or you swap out... Um, female preference okay we're going back to the frog example where actually female preference didn't matter between two different color morphs but the point is is it is it is very complicated and color can interact in such weird and wonderful ways yeah and i like that you brought up the fact that it could be different across populations of an individual species because that is totally the case and i think that actually Mm -hmm. is a good point to make in preparation for paper two which focuses squarely on the variety in climatic conditions and therefore behaviour in uh, in one lizard species. So paper two is Parlin, Schaefer and Jezkova, 2020, modelling the effect of environmental temperatures, microhabitat and behavioural thermoregulation on predicted activity patterns in a desert lizard across its thermally diverse distribution Wow, could have had a few Ooh. more words in that title. Journal of Biogeography. Yeah, but you know what you know what you're getting there. That's don't an you? abstract, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I also I also like how in all that they don't say the species of lizard. <laughs> no, yeah, which is, of course, the one and only desert horned lizard. Phrynosoma platyrhinos. Platyrhinos. What does what's what does that mean? Flat Flat horn. Flat horned. Yeah. Yeah, good Maybe. knowledge. Platy? Yeah, platy. I think so. Platypus. Is a flat cat. It is, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Roadkill cat with beak. Um, yeah, so famed for their ability to squirt blood out of their eyes. It's defensive. Everybody's favourite desert lizard. Exactly. Apparently that blood doesn't taste very good, especially if you're a dog. Dogs hate it. This one neat trick. To keep dogs yeah. out of your yard. <laughs> line, line, your, line your garden with desert horned lizards. And we'll just get some putrid blood in a super soaker. So yeah, they're ant specialists. <sighs> they eat ants only, really. They obviously eat other bugs that are small, but they love ants. They're ant specialists. And they're strictly a desert species, found in the western USA, ranging from southern Idaho in the north to all the way down to northern Mexico. So um, yeah, USA and Mexico. And... There's actually quite a cool bit of um, historical biogeography at the beginning of this paper talking oh, yes. about this species and how during the last glacial maximum, when it was cold, 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 the species inhabited only the warm Mojave and Sonoran deserts. Uh, but around 10,000 years ago, during dramatic climatic warming, they spread north into the Great Basin Desert and up into the Columbian Plateau. And they also managed to withstand nine degrees of warming in the Mojave Desert, which is quite remarkable. They were just like, still getting hotter, but we don't mind. <laughs> Stay here. 
it's yep. actually kind of cool to see these um mirrored patterns of uh, biogeographic expansion in the americas and also in europe around the time that the last glacial maximum finished all the species were just like yo let's go north see what it's all about yeah look at all those niches they're just begging to be filled <laughs> and off they cruised hundreds of hundreds of lizards across the desert into the great basin that's great isn't it the yep. Accumulation of thousands, if not millions, of lizards electing to wander a few paces north. Yeah. And here we are, 10,000 years later, sitting at our computer screens, looking at maps. And do you know what hasn't changed? How little the lizards care. <laughs> the, the apathy of a lizard. Unparalleled. Unrivaled. Yeah. So, okay, we're going to make a long story short here, just briefly. The Great Basin Desert is very cold. Right? And so yeah. is... What's the plateau at the top called? Uh, Colombian. Colombian plateau. They're cold. And the Mojave and Sonoran deserts are very hot. I mean, the Mojave Desert, just, just at the top of it, is where Death Valley is. So when we're talking hot, we are talking seriously hot. Did you say Death Valley? Yeah, it can't hear. It's got no ears. <laughs> so yeah, they now exist in a wide variety of climates, these little lizards. And... Uh, Oh, just one quick taxonomic note before we go on. Um, They're technically a type of uh, desert crocodile, and the lizard is a complete misnomer. No, no. Basically, the authors of this paper recently, apparently, um, a new species was described, Phrynosoma goodii, um, but the authors of this paper have some secret data, and they know that that species may actually not be a species. So for the sake of this paper... uh, (sighs) When they use the name Phrynosoma platyrhinos, they are referring both to platyrhinos, I'm going to say, and Phrynosoma uh, goodii. So they're basically considering them all to be one species. So if you're thinking to yourself, hang on a minute, that part of the range is actually Phrynosoma goodii. You're right, but you're also apparently wrong, but it's yet to be published. So take that. Well, and even besides, besides the... Um... The taxonomic aspect, the sort of more interesting way to think about this is not that they're okay. They are separate species. Okay, they are not separate species because everything's everything's just a continuum, right? So everything's related to everything. Yeah. Don't do it, Ben. Don't do it. No. So, so now you can just think about these lizards and their closest relatives, which we know. You know, that, that you just described this great expansion north for this this mighty mighty lizard convoy, and. So that that species delineation is just a realization of the separation now, right? That's that's what people may have picked up and, and separated separated those species or not. But the exactly. the process the process was still the same process of them heading north and whether they've split, i.e., whether the humans decide whether they've split or not, is sort of besides the point when you're looking at the impact of these two contrasting environments to what was the same ancestor totally yep well said so uh yeah do you have any figures for the temperatures in these places uh well temperatures can reach as high as 46 degrees in april to october where is this this is the southern hot zone right yeah southern warmer yes yes so this is your sort of Death Valley crazy temperatures. 
No, extreme temperatures as high as 51 and a half. What's the hottest temperature you've ever felt? Uh, Probably like 42, 43, something like that. Oh, yeah. Hot? That's pretty hot. Yeah. We had 46 in India, in Rajasthan. But it was yeah. like no humidity, right? It was like 0% humidity. So it wasn't terrible. I think if that had been... It was hot. Like, don't get me wrong. I mean, I was extremely fearful to go out in the sun. You catch me... My my activity was bimodal. So it was like 6 a.m. morning. Yeah. 6 a.m. till 7.30 a.m. <laughs> then get in the shade. And then around about 4 o'clock, I might venture out. Maybe get a little snack. Yeah. But in between those times, I was sheltering. Because, yeah, that is oppressive heat. Yeah, dude. Uh, but, yes, that really mirrors... You know, when you're considering that this is, I mean, they're not the same lizard, obviously. They've been under different evolutionary selective pressures for 10,000 years, which is, you know, not a huge amount of time. But as we know, species can change potentially quite rapidly. But um, regardless, they are existing in a a wide range with a very broad set of temperatures. Yeah, it's going down to what we didn't say the lows. We got lows of like negative seven, negative 17 in the coldest areas in the north. Yeah. Seriously, seriously. Let me know. These are okay. We're going extreme to extreme. Obviously, the averages aren't that that wild. But if you think you're a little cold-blooded little lizard, how much? They don't have little jumpers to wear. They don't have aircon. No, and they're not freeze tolerant, as far as I can gather. They did mention at the end of this paper that they might be freeze tolerant, but I looked, and there's no evidence for it yet. So, as far as we know, it's a might in the sense of they are experiencing negative temperatures and we haven't identified the way that they're doing it therefore this might be a solution they could employ yeah but equally they could just be going underground yes Hmm. so yeah um they built a big very complicated model didn't they there was a big climate model going on um very good sort of i think what they what they said about it was that they had quite accurate microhabitat data so the scale of the climate information they had was a lot finer scale than what you'd ordinarily see in a paper like this well 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 they cited a couple of papers by Kearney and other people and there was a superb set of uh, papers and models and research into converting quite broad scale climate stuff so what people use a lot of the time in these is, is this open available bioclime data, which God, I can't remember what the resolution is, but it's not it's not brilliant. I think it's tens of tens of kilometers. Hmm. And that's not very useful for microclimate. But what's been developed are these models that can t- basically you use other information uh, like elevation and slope angle uh prevailing wind, all sorts of weather stuff, and basically you can combine all these other uh, available data sets that tend to be available at much higher resolutions, i.e. smaller patches of land, like 2 metres, 10 metres, stuff like that. And what you can do is combine that with the climate stuff and come up with a modelled microclimate uh, map essentially, but on a much finer resolution than your raw climate stuff. Because basically these these models have been generated in places where they have measured microclimate and macroclimate, and they know how those two relate. 
and therefore it can be applied to other places where you don't necessarily have one or the other. Because mm. it's, it, it's sort of being like, okay, you have this sort of weather in this sort of area and you know that it's at this elevation and it is shielded from the wind because there is a, a hill, you know, a kilometre this way and the slope angle's this and you know how much sun it gets and basically for all those things you can work out a much finer picture. Really impressive stuff. Like, really, really, really cool. Yeah, it's whole, neat. Yeah, really. So they had this, really so they've had, so they have that, the uh, the microclimate model, uh, which tells them what temperature areas are going to be at what time of year. And then they also worked out some key temperatures for this species. So they knew that they emerged from shelter at around 23.8 degrees. That's like wakey-wakey time for the yeah, little lizard. Yeah, there's a, there's a beautiful diagram. It's like oh, a flowchart of lizard decisions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they, uh, what is it? They wake up, they're like, oh, it's 23.8 degrees. Time to get up. And once it gets to 31 degrees, they're active. They're hunting, they're basking, they're doing bits. Well, they're hunting, they're looking for ants. Well, they're basking, aren't they? Yeah, but I presume they're also basking before that to try and reach the temperature. Between 23.8 and 31, they must be doing some basking. Yes, between 23.8 and 31, oh, I'm, they're basking. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. I'm conflating lizard body temperature and air temperature. Yes. Yes, that's my bad. So yeah, basically, the lizards between 31 and 42.4, which is quite specific, but between that temperature, between those temperatures, they're active. They're doing lizard activities. But once that temperature reaches 42.4, it's time to go home. It's back to bed. Back, back to bed. To it's the... too hot. Cooking. Can't stand it. Exactly. The, so there's a couple of things for, was it the emergence temperature at 23.8? Isn't that the lowest temperature that their prey, these little ants, are actually available. That's right. Yeah, so that's the temperature the ants come out. Lower than that temperature, there's no motivation to leave because you're only going to be vulnerable to predators. There's no gain. There's no prey to be eat. And that thermal maximum was a was was. There's a lot of a lot of this stuff is based on previous studies where they've done laboratory experiments to work out what these lizards like, and that 42.4 was a voluntary thermal maximum. So they had these lizards in this zone and the temperature would get higher and higher and higher and higher and the temperature at which the lizard decided to leave, that's that voluntary thermal maximum. So they're sort of, okay, that's the temperature they can't stand, they're going to leave, and therefore it's quite a good uh, sort of proxy for this model of an estimate of when they're going to retreat out of the sun and back into their little little burrows or to some shelter that's right and so they were looking at using their model how much time the temperature was going to be right for these lizards to be active doing their things throughout the year in the different localities and they had 31 locations across these hot and cold deserts and yeah broadly i mean should we get into what the model kind of informed them about the lives yeah of these i think so because it, it, Basically, you've, you've got this situation where you're modelling, okay, at this time of year, temperatures would be this and these different things. These are the places they could have gone. Uh, basically, what sort of options would they have? And it's trying to determine what time... Basically, what uh, windows there were for these lizards to do the things that we know they have to do. They have to eat, they have to sleep, they have to bask, okay? And we have this 
prior information that they've they, you know they've stated all these prior studies that have identified you know the temperatures these lizards prefer the temperatures they they prey prefer the temperatures that they're mm. doing certain behaviors so you can buy the temperatures those. they hate yeah. And the temperatures they hate, yeah, and they cannot stand over that forty-two point four. Ah. I just love that. I just love the idea of being the scientist who conducted that temperature experiment. Like, yeah, go on, put it in the box, heat it up, <laughs> heat, keep heating. And the lizard's like, I'm off, I'm off. This is too hot for me, guys. Let him go. Like, he's had enough. Yeah, it's like forty-two point four degrees. Imagine the <laughs> fr- the frame of mind of that lizard upon exit, just like. <gasps> Well, I pres- <laughs> of course, of I course, know. like I'm making out like they're being horrible to lizards. Like these are temperatures; those temperatures the lizards experience in nature far exceed forty-two point four degrees. That's why it's, it's a voluntary thermal maximum. Yeah. not this is as hot until the lizard melts or something. No, yeah, they're <laughs> not know, just, this... the lizard was unharmed. The lizard's yeah, just like yeah, guys. Completely... I don't want to be in this box now. Yeah. It's too hot, and it just walks it out restrained. into a cool retreat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, no, there's no no lizard cruelty in this, but um. Yeah, so I guess broadly, um, thermoregulation and microhabitat selection, right, is not enough for these lizards to behave in the same ways. Despite the fact that they are broadly right. similar lizards, the temperatures in the different areas are too different, and it means that their lives cannot be similar between north and south lizards. Yeah, so instead of being able to use the habitat in different ways, i.e. make use of different microhabitats, you know, they modeled all these microhabitats. Okay, they're not available. Therefore, it's leading to this behavioral change or behavioral plasticity, I suppose, to tackle these differences in temperature and seasonality. Exactly. And so the northern deserts, the cool deserts, they have really cold winters. And during these winters, the lizards are largely inactive. So essentially, they're hibernating. And their activity patterns for the or lizards. Roommating? Hibernating, brumating. I always forget the difference. Now I've brought I think it up. Brumating is like it. escaping heat, and hibernating is escaping cool. But I don't know. I think that's it. I don't know. I've seen debates about this. I don't know whether people. I, I, I really regret bringing it up. They're predicted to be most active during the middle of the day in summer in these northern deserts. So, yeah, basically they're waiting for the nice warm weather, and they're active throughout the day. Conversely, lizards from the hot southern deserts are active morning and afternoon. Bimodal. They have two periods. They can't stand the heat of the day, just like me in India. Yeah, yeah. The middle of the day is too hot in the southern deserts, so those lizards are retreating into their burrows or under a little stone or whatever it might be during the middle of the day, then coming out again in the afternoon once it's cooled down. So I think, for me, that was like the key obvious difference between these populations is that like the northern ones, where it's cold, spending the days in the summer all day doing yes. this. The ones down south, it gets too hot, so they can only do it morning and afternoon. But a lot more of the winter and the kind of autumn time is still uh, an appropriate temperature for them to be active. There's a lot less cold weather. But during the day, there's a shorter, like, sweet spot for them to to do stuff during the day. Exactly. So it's more spread out over the year, but truncated into these two uh, active periods during the day. And there is a a little bit of like during the middle of the year what was that like day 200 ish there's this wonderful sweet spot where the lizards don't they can come out they don't even need to bask they go about their day and they go quick bury back down 
and then come back out and they don't bask for like a you know a month or so in the middle of the year because it's just cruising time for them easy delightful so overall in the southern deserts on average there was 67 percent more time suitable for foraging and reproduction so i think it's fair to say that despite the fact they have to encounter the hottest temperatures i think that the ones in the south have an easier life compared to the ones in the north they don't have to deal they obviously have to deal with cold because it does get cold in the desert at night but they don't have months and months of potentially freezing nights to deal with yeah yeah they do so their their winters they do have to spend a lot of time basking to make up for it but there are a very 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 few days that there is no time suitable for them to do something mm, exactly and so yeah we've got these two wildly different environments the lizards are having to behave differently they're having to alter their activity times and it's quite cool because these differing lifestyles are actually represented in the species natural history so nor well life history so the northern populations often lay a single larger clutch whereas mm-hmm. southern females regularly lay two clutches each with a smaller number of eggs and it's thought that that's directly linked to the number of days with suitable conditions for egg laying egg development and juvenile growth because when you have yeah. species existing at higher latitudes that is a really, really major factor of like, how do I survive, right? I need enough time to not only have the eggs develop within me, but also then to lay them, have them develop an appropriate temperature and then hatch and give the babies enough time to actually feed before they themselves have to overwinter. Yeah, because that's a, that's a real kicker for the northern site is you've got this big chunk of the year, maybe, what, 100, 100 plus days in the winter where there are no days. There is no time during the day for any suitable lizard activity. You have this one quick burst of maybe 100, 150, pushing 200 days in the middle of the year where there's time. Okay, can bask, can forage right in the middle of the day, not in the morning, not in the evening. The complete contrast of the southern site. Quick, do everything and then bed back down. So you've got to squeeze all that breeding activity, all the, yeah, like you say, all those different stages all into one specific season and make sure everyone's big enough so they can survive the winter which is quite long. Winter's coming. Mm. Winter's actually just arrived, hasn't it? Yes. So yeah. all those lizards, what what day of the year would it be? Uh, it's Ooh. always... They're all bedded down right now in the northern site. In the southern site now, they could pr- pretty much be active all day. Oh, it's just not fair, A little fair, bit of basking. A couple of hours sort of waiting for the sun to get high enough. Go, okay, active, 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 active. Little bit of basking, nice and nice kip. That's what <laughs> that's what they're looking at currently in the southern site. It's going to get a little bit tougher for them, beginning of next year, in sort of January time. They'll have to spend a lot more time basking. But right now, it's quite a short day for them. But it's actually not quite uh, bimodal. It's all re- it's all re- sort of um, relative, though, isn't it? Those southern platyrinos don't even know they're born, mate. Nah, northern ones, they're kipping. They're they're deep deep in a slumber going deeper underground yeah right well there we go i think that neatly draws to a close our uh, second paper on desert lizards we do have a brand new recently described desert lizard species
True Desert Dweller. So this paper is by Juamani Valderrama, Quiroz, Gutierrez, Aguilar, Kirigin, Cuenca Mamani, Valadres Fondes, Sedena, Chaparro, Santa Cruz, and Abdala. 2020, it's brand new. Some Colour in the Desert, Description of a New Species of Leolamus from Southern Peru and its Conservation Status, published in Amphibian and Reptile Conservation. Mm. So we're heading a little bit further south. A little bit further south. On the coast of Peru. That's right. So the desert of southern Peru and northern Chile is this area with a high degree of endemism of reptiles. And yeah, in this paper, there's a new endemic species from the genus Leolamus. It's got a restricted geographical distribution on the western slopes of the La Caldera Batholith in the department of Arequipa, southern Peru. And yeah, that's this desert province of southern Peru. And it's uh, 1,800 to 2,756 metres above sea level, Ben. Oof. That's high up. There are a lot of species in the genus Leolamus, aren't there? Uh, yeah, and I think there's probably some of the prettier lizards in that genus. There's some pretty, there's some fun colours. Yeah, yeah. We've got quite a fun individual here. Uh, yeah, it's a it's nice thing. Beautiful slaty brown grey, but with orange spots. Yeah, all over him. And a little uh, bit sort of blue. orange flanks. Yeah, is it? Is it like? I'm trying to see. Is it blue just catching the light, or is it that blue grey mixed in with the, with the brown? It's. I think it's just got like. I think some of them have blue backs. I mean, maybe it's a male thing. I don't know. Um, but yeah, there's like certainly in figure eight, you can see there's one with like a nice sort of blue sheen to his back. Yeah. Yeah. They're um. beautiful. Grey, orange, bits of blue mixed in, paler yellow, bellies, yellow chin. quite stubby uh, little faces. And look at the habitat. The habitat looks like Mars. Martian lizard. Mars with a bit of veg, tiny bits of veg. But it's mostly just sandy gravel, hills. Um, I love how they've got... Habitat in A, the dry season, and B, the wet season. It's like, <laughs> looks the same. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot grows here. Um, but yeah, they're pretty nice. Up to 270 formally described species in this genus. So uh, what's one more? And um, yeah, they've described it as Leolamus ancapuca. A-N-Q-A-P-U-K-A. And the specific names... Oh, here we go. Look, the specific name refers to the coloration patterns of males. The word Ancapuca is an original word in the Quechua language, which is spoken in the Peruvian Andes, corresponding to a complex word between Anca, which is the word for blue, and Puca, which means orange or red. So there we go. It actually means in one word, orange and blue. I like that. That's amazing. Yeah. Orange blue I... as a mashup. And that's the name of the species. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I've, I've tracked down figure eight that you were saying about, and you do see it's almost, almost the coloration of a toke gecko. That's that a really quite good light blue with very, very intense orange spots. And I've got to say, figure eight is brilliant. It's just a lizard eating a massive moth. They love the moths. Its head. 
It's yeah. great. And the moth's so furry. It looks like it's really enjoying it. It's like, got this moth. And uh, yeah, they love eating moths of the family Sphingidae. And they also love eating beetles. They're beetle and moth eaters. And uh, yeah, they're inhabiting this desert where it's sandy, rocky. There's very little vegetation. There's often these large, upright cacti. And apparently they like sheltering under the roots of these cacti sometimes. Although you can't see any in the pictures um, that they've got. They're quite little though, aren't they? They could hide in all sorts of little places. They're only 60, what, 66 millimetres in length? Oh, wow. Up to to a max of like 73 and a half. Like a shrew. They're they're pretty little, which makes, I mean, you know, living in a desert is going to be a tough life. You don't want to be too big. Nah. nah, Let's get into the nooks and crannies, really. Yeah, make make sure a moth is a good meal. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, they talk about in the paper that these during the rainy season, a lot of these beetles are like breeding wildly in these like small pools that form or near these small pools. It's not clear how the beetles relate to the pools. I don't really know how beetles and pools interact, but um, apparently the lizards capitalize in a big way and just go ham. That sort of seasonal feeding frenzy. Sort That's of thing. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know that like desert in bloom thing that you sometimes see on uh, yeah. David Attenborough? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they love that. When it blooms, oh boy. So many (laughs) beetles. They're just... They look like little Swiss rolls, these lizards, after that season. I should think. Allegedly. 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 So the story goes. But what a word. I love that name. That's got to be up there with one of the best names ever. Because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not only is it local dialect, also it's descriptive of how the lizard appears. But also it's a mashup word that means blue and orange all in one. It's It's basically blorange. It's up there. It's basically blorange, but more elegant. Yeah, elegant and it's just... Oh, superb. So yeah, anything else to say about... Leolamus. Um they're 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 brilliant and uh welcome to science little lizard. Leolamus Ankapuka. Hello. Do we have a common name? I didn't see one in there. I didn't see one either. Um Ankapuka lizard. It's gotta be. Yeah, I mean that would Yeah. Yeah. There's no there's no reason not to go for that, right? That's it. Sweet. Well, yeah, that concludes our episode on desert lizards. So, mm. yeah, thanks again to Hudson Schwartz for being our patron and uh, yeah, picking such you. a great topic um, for an episode. And if you too would like to become our Patreon, we'd be eternally grateful. But equally, if you want to listen for free, carry on. <laughs> carry on. So, uh, yeah, patreon.com slash app highlights. Have you got any other business? I've got DOS other business. I don't think I have any other business. Pretty sure I don't. The first thing I want to talk about briefly is uh, our new calendars arrived, Ben. Oh! I know you haven't seen yours because it's in my house. And uh, I've got intentions on posting it, but I thought well, we should mention well, it. Well, skip, skip onto the page where you can see all the pictures at one time. and At least oh. I can see them. Oh, is that at the back? Okay. Well, why don't I just show you like a select few images and you can just marvel at them for a sec. All right. All right. Here we go. Look, I want to get this near the mic so you can hear me. Flicking through. You hear them? <laughs> Very nice glossy images. Okay. Look at this thing. Oh, is that one of those legless geckos? It is, yeah. Burton's legless lizard. It looks like a, a like an Ayatula that's been got lost in the desert. Yeah, totally. Really cool. Such a nice shot. Um so yeah, what we let's see if I can find you another one. Ooh, what's this one? Aha. 
talked about them on the podcast. It's a dugite. Oh, adorable. Yeah, adorable. In like in a sort of grassy woodland. But yeah, this what we're looking at is the new calendar by the photographer Ross McGibbon. He was kind enough to send us each calendar. And uh, we had them last year. And to be honest, I think he's actually even outdone himself from last year. The photos are absolutely spectacular. It's... Last year's one was brilliant. It, yeah. He, honestly, every month I turned it over, I was like, sweet. Um, so, even yeah. that like, weird, really built frog. Oh, yeah. I the little chonker. I forget what they're called. Yeah. But I mean, oh, yeah, it's, it's essentially just a reptile themed calendar with just tons of fantastic uh, photography and if you'd like to get one for yourself i'm going to put a link on our facebook and also on our twitter or you could probably just google um and it'll be in the show notes uh, ross mcgibbon photography and um a portion of the proceeds go to help the global snake bite initiative and also the oh there's a carpet python in here sweet <laughs> and also the royal flying doctors because ross actually had to be airlifted um, as a result of receiving a snake bite. So, um, yeah, he's kind of uh, made it a mission to give back to the Royal Flying Doctors who uh, saved him, which is pretty pretty sweet. Mm. Um, so, yeah, if you'd like to pick up a calendar, please do so. Support awesome Ross. calendar. Awesome yeah. cause. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I actually know that Ross is out at the minute. Um, he's on a tour going to some islands, photographing some endemic species uh, and what he's producing looks really cool so yep check out the calendar um and finally i've got one more aob we had a really nice email from uh, renee kohler who works at the museum for natukund in germany Oh, he's actually yes. he's actually a zoological curator at this museum, and yes, uh, yeah, yes, yes. really nice, really nice email. Um, and one of the things that he mentioned was that I have been wrong, and I like being wrong. So, as in, I like finding out I'm wrong so I can correct it. I don't like just sort of like actively being wrong. But um, yeah, basically, you know, I keep banging on about sometimes whenever we talk about <laughs> green pit vipers, which is quite a lot. Let's face yeah. it. Well, I'm wrong. Basically, um, the nominotype. For Tremerosaurus, Tremerosaurus viridis, was set as Tremerosaurus insularis and not Tremerosaurus gramineus, which means that Cryptelotros albolabris, Macrops, Purpureo maculatus, etc. are all back in Tremerosaurus and gramineus has moved to Craspedocephalus. Oh um, my days. So, what's, so essentially the type specimen for Tremerosaurus is no longer the other type specimen and therefore things have shifted again. Yeah, basically the nominal genus was invalid because it was based on a nominal species that was not among the originally included species of the nominal genus. Ah, yes, okay. <laughs> yeah, so basically... I think so, yeah. Yeah, the, where, where the name was gotten from was, um, it was a mistake. And uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, Tremerosaurus is now um, associated with the Tremerosaurus albolabris group, yes. which was placed in the genus Cryptelitrops. So the genetics hasn't shifted. It's more just the order of naming sort of uh, priority, I guess, has shifted. Yeah, exactly. And okay. uh, there is a paper on this. I'll put a link in the show notes if you're interested. 
these things are always fluid, but that's that's yeah. I that's feel cool like to know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I feel like Renee knows his stuff. So thanks very much, Renee, and really yeah, appreciated, really appreciated the email. A very entertaining read. So um, yeah, let's uh, let's put it there. Call it there, shall we? Yeah, I think so. So, um, yeah, all that remains to be said is if you want to get in touch with us, you can. Herphighlights at gmail.com or we are on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs>